Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34. Yes, that will be joining us. Those folks include um, Clem Balanoff from uh, the National Political Director for the Amalgamated Transit Workers Union and former Illinois State Representative Carl Rosen, another one of our um, union brothers from United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America. Um, Alan will be uh, anchoring that panel. There are other folks involved there as well. Oh, and we anticipate, how can I forget? I didn't forget it, but I should have mentioned at the beginning, uh, Nina Turner is going to be joining us in the second hour. Uh, we're definitely looking forward to that. If you want to get pumped up, by all means, stick with us through that second hour. Uh, we'll be joined by progressive powerhouse congressional candidate from uh, Nebraska's second district, Kara Eastman. And uh, Alex Morse as well from Massachusetts 1st District running against Richie Neal, the head of the Ways and Means Committee. If uh, we end up pulling that off, it will be uh, AOC-esque, <laughs> if there is such a word. Uh, so we definitely are looking forward to what's coming up here. And, and as, uh, I don't know if folks on Facebook can see Dr. Bill's with us here for all those folks who are Dr. Bill fans, uh, Dr. Bill who anchors our, uh, healthcare emergency webinars each and every Sunday, four o'clock Eastern, uh, we'll have another one of those coming up here, uh, this coming weekend. Uh, keep your eyeballs peeled on your inbox, uh, for more information on that. And speaking of which, the way you'll get that information is if you go to Progressive Democrats of America's website, go to pdamerica.org, pdamerica.org, and slam that join button so that you'll get those updates on Dr. Bill's uh, weekly town halls on that very important subject, as well as all of our information about progressive candidates, etc. So for now, everyone, thanks so much for being here. And for our um, for our folks who are in the Zoom meeting, uh, toss into the chat there where you're calling, who you are, and where you're uh, zooming in from. We'd love to get to know you, get to know some folks in there because on this particular call, or on this, excuse me, old school, uh, in this video conference. Um, we would not only like to present really important information that everybody here is going to be able to learn something from, but likewise, let's build some community here. Uh, kind of tough times. A lot of people feel as though they may be, you know, out in the wilderness right now. One of the beautiful things about, uh, about shows like this is that we have the opportunity to come together as a community and um, quite frankly, share some healing energy that way. So uh, please do type into the chat who you are and where you're calling in from. Hey, Mike. Alan here. How you doing? Fantastic, Alan. Perfect. The man of the hour. Take it away, brother. Well, um, one thing, of course, I do want to say at the top is we are going to extend out. The final plenary is going to run two hours. Um, and Nina Turner, who opened our uh, opening plenary, uh, is going to close our closing plenary. And we have, uh, we've had so many contributions from Congress people, uh, Senator Markey, of course, someone from Senator Sanders' office, which is uncommon as we focused on content, and so many Congress people. But at the end, we're going to focus in the last hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half, uh, as well on some progressive congressional candidates. Uh, in very important races. So we're going to hear from Carrie Eastman in Nebraska's second, which we'll get to hear why that is perhaps the most important congressional district ever in the world uh, for a race in the 2020 elections because of a very distinct possibility. I'll explain that. So stay tuned for that in about 90 minutes. We have Mike Siegel down in Texas uh, in the district that runs from Houston to Austin. Um, the real progressive champion with a real chance of winning down there and unseating a Republican. And then we have Alex Morse, um, who uh, is really at the heart of the battle for progressives to. This would be the biggest defeat 
yet of any incumbent Democrat in the primary if he defeats Richie Neal. Because in all due respect to Joe Crowley, even two years ago, and Elliot Engel, head of a committee this year, um, whether Richie Neal is the second or the third most powerful member of the House, because Steny Hoyer does play big as the majority leader, uh, but he's head of ways and means, and that is a hugely influential position. Alex Morse has a real chance of defeating him in what is now a, a controversial and very charged race out in Massachusetts. One, and Alex Morse will be joining us uh, at time certain uh, East Coast time at 445. Um, we have Mike Siegel, by the way, all the way down right before Nina Turner. So that's in two and a half hours. As you can see, we're extending long. We have a video of an interview with Reverend Jackson hosted by John Nichols from The Nation that was just produced today. So we have an exciting lineup and we're gonna launch in about a minute as people continue to come in. Uh, I'm not gonna riff on the quirkiness of the people arriving late to Zoom calls and why it is that that tends to happen. But we have people flooding in right now. We of course, happy to say that we've had many thousands of viewers on Facebook streams over the past few days. Um, and uh, I know we were up around 5,000 for the one two days ago, and we were climbing towards that with yesterday's as well. And today we're looking to break our records. And I do wanna say lastly, uh, please donate if you can to PDA, of course, uh, as well to our partner organizations if you can. But for PDA, we have put this on. Um, it is free, it is free to the world. And it has been done by our staff that has worked extra, extra, extra overtime. I think they've done a fantastic job across the first four days. Uh, I really think uh, we all have a PDA and we're planning on doing a great job again today and an extended version of Progressive Central, the last day of Progressive Central. Uh, we're going to start. Helen? Yes. Sorry to interrupt. It's Dr. Bill. We are at the top of the hour, ready to start let's recording go. when you are. We are ready to record. We've been on Facebook for a few minutes and let's start recording. And we are. And so I will say welcome to Progressive Central 2020, day five the final day of our five-day Progressive Central. We've been doing Progressive Central at PDA uh, since uh, we started every uh, during every Democratic National Convention. Of course, this year it is happening virtually because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and to get us off with a bang, are we ready to go with the uh, video that was sent to us by uh, one of our Progressive Champions in Congress, Representative Judy Chu? And take it away, Representative Judy Chu. Hello, Progressive Democrats of America. I'm Congressmember Judy Chu from Los Angeles, California, and I'm so glad I could join you virtually today to talk about the most important election of our lifetimes, the election to defeat Donald Trump and send Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to the White House. Our country is in the throes of three crises. We are facing a pandemic that's killed over 170,000 people. We are contending with an economic crisis that's left 16.3 million Americans, one in 10 workers, out of work. And we're confronting systemic racism and inequality deeply rooted in our country in a way that we've not seen in decades. Yet all we continue to hear from Donald Trump are shameless excuses and lies in an effort to cover for his repeated failures of leadership. We cannot accept these failures as normal. This election is a chance to turn things around and get our country back on the right track. But we must remember it's also a chance for us to move our country forward in a way that we haven't before. Together, Democrats can expand healthcare so everyone can afford it. Put a college education in the reach of all Americans, no matter their family background, fight against the damage of climate change and welcome immigrants because we know they make our country great. We can accomplish these things and so much more if we elect Biden and Harris in November. So let's work together, organize and get out the vote to deny President Trump a second term and build our country back better. Thank you, Representative Judy Chu. And I just want to say, when I first came in as executive director of PDA, and I actually came in during the home stretch of the 2018 midterms, and we endorsed Judy Chu, and she is such a team player. She just straight up said, thank you. Don't do a thing for me. Here are all the races that are going to be close, including the ones, of course, famously uh, near her in Orange County, just south of her in Orange County. And, you know, put all your efforts into those. 
and uh, and then she would provide whatever support she could as well. So a real team player there, Judy Chu, and thank you so much for that message, Representative Chu. Okay, so this hour, we're gonna be focusing on economy and labor. And initially I thought we'd put the macroeconomists up at the top, but Professor William Darity can only join us. Uh, he's teaching a class right till the top of the hour. So I said, let's make it easy for him. He'll be joining us at the half hour. We'll get to a video from uh, Bernie Sanders, chief economic advisor, uh, really over the past five years, Stephanie Kelton um, at the bottom of the hour. That's a pre-recorded uh, video. And so at the top, we're gonna start, first of all, with our partners, our revolution. And then we're gonna hear from Carl Rosen and Clem Balanoff, two great uh, progressive labor leaders. Um, and uh, at the very bottom of the hour, we're going to be joined by Susie Shannon, who has convened the DNC poverty panel, uh, the, the, the council um, that just had its meeting this morning. And so we'll hear about that. And then at the bottom, we were gonna play the video from Rahul Grijalva, who of course has been suffering with COVID-19, let everybody know he's looking great and his message is so powerful. So we'll get to that at the bottom of the hour. Right at the top, I wanna introduce uh, the uh, head of our partner organization, Our Revolution, uh, Joseph uh, G. Varghese, who is, I really believe, one of the most important uh, activists in the country and very proud that we get to work in partnership with our revolution. Um, and uh, hopefully over the next few minutes, people will understand why I say that in particular about Joseph, because um, and part of the framing of the discussion in the first half hour, of course, about labor, uh, the importance of labor unions for uh, the progressive movement and the ways in which uh, progressive organizations made up of sort of citizen activists um, like our revolution, like progressive Democrats of America, really, really need to forge a solid partnership with uh, labor and the progressive wing of organized labor. So with that, uh, welcome, Joseph. Thank you, Brother Minsky and progressive Democrats. Hello, uh, my name is Joseph Givarghese. I'm the executive director of Our Revolution. I see many friends, comrades in the struggle here uh, it's wonderful to join you in solidarity. I want to talk, well, I want to set the stage um, about the rise and fall of the American labor movement and why it matters for the progressive movement. There's a slide that, Alan, if uh, you can project, that tracks the uh, growth and decline of the labor movement in America. And I'm going to drill down on these numbers in a moment. But when we think about the America that we want to create, when we think about all of the subjects that we've been discussing over the past several days, healthcare for all, addressing income inequality, right, caring for those who are the most vulnerable, we made the greatest advances when the American labor movement was at the height of its power. In the 1960s, right, labor got to its zenith point in terms of share of membership in the American workforce in the 1950s and 60s. And that strong labor movement helped support the fight for civil rights. It helped win policies like Medicaid and Medicare, right? It helped advance the overall progressive agenda. And that being said, there's a reason for the steep decline. We went from 35% to we're probably less than 6% union density in the private sector now. That is significant because over the last 40 years, the corporate establishment has gone all out to destroy the American labor movement because they saw what organized power could accomplish, right? That is essential. So if we want to win Medicare for all, if we want to get college for all, right, if we want to create the society we want to create, we've got to help the labor movement get back on its feet. And 
to set the stage there, right? The issue that we've got to remember is that, you know, we know that Republicans understand how dangerous organized workers are. The first order of business when Republicans get elected to office is to eviscerate collective bargaining rights. Scott Walker, Ronald Reagan, they get it. You get elected and you defeat your enemies. You knock their knees out so they don't have power to contest your agenda. Democrats, our side, we're not that smart sometimes about power, right? We're idealists, right? But we also got to be pragmatic if we're going to win. And Bill Clinton got into office. He did nothing to grow the labor movement. Barack Obama got into the White House. He did nothing to grow the labor movement. Oh, and I forgot Jimmy Carter, right? There is a straight line between the last 40 years, the dismantling of the everything that we accomplished from the, you know, the New Deal to the all of the work in the 60s, the dismantling of the regulatory state, a straight line to the fact that Democrats do not understand that we need organized power, which is fully embodied in organized labor. That being said, here's the model that we've got to think about going forward, right? The way the American labor movement was built, how did we get, the question we've got to ask is how do we get to 35% union density? How do we get to a moment in our society when regular workers had power? Well, two things happened. There were strikes in critical industry, right? Auto workers, steel workers, right? Those were the Walmart jobs in the 1920s and 1930s. Workers walked off their jobs en masse and they made FDR take action. FDR was not a willing partner. But workers, because they went on strike, forced his hand. And FDR did two things to strengthen worker power. He helped usher in the passage of the Wagner Act, the first time we had labor law in America in a meaningful way. Uh, That grew the labor movement by about three million workers. And that was uh, 35, I believe, or 37. But then even more significantly, Right. Not only did Roosevelt use the power of the bully pulpit, he used his executive power over federal contracting to dramatically grow the labor movement by over 10 million people. What he said in 1941, as World War II was underway, what he said to the corporate classes, if you want to do business with the United States government, we need to have labor peace. We cannot have workers right, who are defending America, going out on strike, protesting low wages, no benefits, that's unacceptable. And that tripart decision-making, the president bringing together labor and capital set the stage for creating the biggest middle class in the history of the world. We were a counterweight to corporate power. We were in the White House and we were on the streets and we transformed America. That is what is missing in our equation. We do not have power. And power is really, and when I want to say power, it means organized people, organized money in right uh, institutions. And that's what unions are. And when Barack Obama got to office the first time, and then I will pause I was the deputy director of the Change to Win Labor Federation, which is a coalition of, uh, you know, multiple unions, including SEIU, UFCW, the Teamsters, and had the opportunity to meet with Senator Obama when he was on the campaign trail with our presidents. And we said, Senator, we're going to endorse you, but we believe The most important thing you can do day one is use the power of the presidency to grow the ranks of the American labor movement. And we have two things we want you to do. 
pass employee free choice, the, uh, you know, use the bully pulpit, pass EFCA, card check, make it easier for workers to organize. But second, and more importantly, use executive action. Use the power over federal contracts. The U.S. government is the biggest purchaser of goods and services in the American economy. Use that power and say to corporate America, if you want taxpayer dollars, pay living wages. Respect the right to organize. Don't offshore jobs. You show that the power of government is on the side of workers. And we said in order to do that, to make good on that, you need to create a White House office on good jobs. You need to have a good job czar, a union czar in the White House. And Barack said yes. And he appointed Joe Biden on January 31st, uh, right, his first 30, 31 days in office. He invited us to the White House and he announced the creation of the White House Task Force on Middle Class Working Families. And he appointed Joe Biden as the chairman of the White House Task Force on Middle Class and Working Families. And his job was to be, right, the blue collar champion for America. His job was to use the power of the presidency to transcend all these different, you use the power of the White House to make sure all the different agencies use their power to improve workers' lives. The short of it is spent a lot of time in the White House uh, representing workers during Obama's first term, meeting with the vice president's staff. Every executive order we put on the table, right, raise the minimum wage. You can raise the minimum wage for millions of workers on federal contracts. You can stop wage theft for millions of workers on federal contracts. Every single thing that we proposed, instead of si se puede, right, Obama's uh, slogan, we got no se puede, right? White House counsel is like, oh, it's illegal. Uh, chamber, I mean, the uh, political shop told me like, oh, it's, you know, the chamber's going to come after us. Everywhere we went, we had opposition. And so we took a step back. We reflected. Um, and, you know, we actually spent some time, we, uh, you know, we went and talked to some elites in DC, you know, people who serve in the white house and Capitol Hill. And we said, why the fuck did the American labor get nothing out of this administration? The president didn't use the bully pulpit to pass labor law reform when he could have, and he didn't use issue a single executive order to raise the standard of living for American workers. And what people said is, you know what? And I remember in particular, one noted economist, she got up and looked out her window in DC and she said, you, you wanna know why you guys got nothing? You're playing an inside game. And at that moment, that was the genesis of what we know now as the fight for 15. There is a direct correlation between, right, workers went on strike because a president they elected would not, and a vice president they elected, would not use the bully pulpit to advance their agenda. And we struck fast food workers, we around the country, we struck Walmart workers, we struck port truck drivers, because our target was the occupants of the White House. And that worker power then translated into policy power. And I remember standing outside the White House with striking workers. I organized uh, the first strike outside Obama's White House. Barack Obama uh, was in there and Bernie Sanders came and Keith Ellison came. And this is back in 2014. And with, I'm sorry, it was in 2013. Within six months of that first strike, Barack Obama stood at the State of the Union and he said, I'm gonna issue an executive order to raise wages for federal contract workers. And he, to 1010, we were asking for 15. Then he issued a couple of executive orders on wage theft, extend paid leave. The point I wanna bring here is they started to understand once we hit the streets that they had to respond to us. And 
that ultimately is a key lesson that we as progressives are need to learn. We're going to have to hit the streets. We're going to have to make Biden do it. That's what we had to do under Obama. Um, and we have to make sure growing the labor movement is one of the first things the administration does. You, right, as, as a strategist, we should know as soon as we get into power, we should, our goal should become more powerful. We should grow our ranks, grow more voters, right, and build institutions. That is how we're going to win Medicare for all and the other, other items. But we have to be pragmatic. So with that, I will give it back to you, Brother Minsky. Progressive Democrats of America, thanks for having me. Yes, and Joseph, if you can hang out too, if you've got the time, we're going to go to Carl Rosen, then we're going to go to Clem Balanoff. Then uh, I know Professor Darity's here. Now, this is interesting because on the economic front later in the hour, we're going to hear from two economists who are very much against PAYGO. And of course, we do have in your chart there, right, the New Deal and the prospect of a Green New Deal and how possibly not worrying about federal deficits could really recharge the union movement if we can combine the two. So that'll be an interesting component. But right now, uh, let me introduce Carl Rosen, who is the general president of the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America. And your thoughts again, and I, by the way, I completely concur with Joseph's final point. It is essential for those of us who are activists and progressives in organizations like PDA and of course, rank and file from our revolution who don't have roots in the labor union movement. You can tell from Joseph's chart how, of course, fewer and fewer Americans would have roots in the labor union member movement, though I'm proud to say I'm a card-carrying member of SAG-AFTRA still. So, um, you know, to make sure that progressives are fully cognizant and remain coordinated with the labor movement. So with that sort of as a, as a thought, Carl Rosen, your thought about the uh, American labor movement, the progressive movement, which ostensibly is stronger now than it has been, certainly stronger than 92 when Clinton was elected, stronger than 2008 when Obama was elected, thanks to the success of Bernie Sanders' campaigns, the election of the squad, the election of progressives around the country. It's fair to say as an electoral formation, the progressives are stronger than ever. How can we work together to grow the labor movement and make the progressive movement into a winning, a winning political movement? Boy, that's a small subject. Carl Rosen, take it away. Yeah, in two to three minutes. Uh, so thank you, Alan, and thank you, Joseph. I, I absolutely concur that the number one task for the labor movement and the progressive movement in general is, um, is to have people on the streets. Uh, and I wouldn't even say from day one of a Biden administration. I'd say from day one after we get through the November election. Obviously, right now, we have to do everything we can to get Trump out of the White House and, and fight to get the best, uh, the best people into the uh, Senate and Congress that we can. We know no matter what, um, it, it's, both of those buildings are probably still gonna be dominated by corporate Democrats uh, to the extent that Democrats are in charge. Um, and the only way we move them is when they feel the heat from the people. And that's what we've gotta be doing. Um, and, and we have to do it immediately because very likely, um, Biden will have a Democratic Congress, assuming he gets one in both houses, and we better damn well work hard to make that happen. Um, he'll have it very possibly for only two years, unless he does a lot better than Obama does. Uh, hopefully he learns the other huge goddamn mistake of the Obama administration, which was to do way too small a recovery plan, which meant that two years later when the elections came up, too many people were in misery and, uh, and Democrats got voted out. But, you know, we, you know, we want to influence that, too, but we need to get everything we can in the first two years. Uh, we're going to have to make sure that uh, the Democrats uh, get some courage and get rid of the uh, filibuster. It's, it's gone on a, on a lot of the most important stuff already anyway and, and make sure things happen. That's only going to happen if we are out there making noise in the streets. And if the labor movement is is making noise in the workplaces, and I would say it's not only the unionized workplaces, but what Fight for 15 which was doing, which was going out and helping organize the unorganized. Uh, and even though they weren't, in a lot of cases, actually able to organize them into unions, it's still a very important role for the labor movement. So our, our union is, is doing that in conjunction with DSA right now, the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, or EWOC, I encourage you to go to uh, ueunion.org, our uh, website, and you can see uh, find ways to see about that or just uh, just Google that. Uh, but but 
we have to be getting, you know, the working class is getting so screwed right now. Um, those who are, are working in, uh, you know, essential workers are, are in terrible conditions with their health and at much greater risk than it should be. We never did an appropriate shutdown. We still need to probably do that uh, at some point here, unless they can really quickly move to vaccine. Uh, and to do a real shutdown, of course, means providing a tremendous amount of funding. And I think Joseph was right that there's going to be, or maybe it was Alan, was it right that there's going to be a big fight over uh, over the size of deficits that need to be run? We need to have the biggest deficits in American history, absolutely, but not for tax breaks for the rich. Uh, we, we And we've got to put our issues out there, you know, labor rights, as Joseph mentioned, minimum wage, um, guaranteeing benefits, Medicare for all, uh, Green New Deal with a strong transition uh, uh, sections for protecting uh, workers. Um, uh, racial justice, immigration, expanding democracy, wrapping everything up into a massive recovery bill. None of that's going to happen unless we have a lot of people in action. Labor is too small to do it by itself. Uh, we need the whole progressive movement on board with us. Fortunately, you know, there's the new generation, you know, they, they you know, they came out of uh, the 2001-2 the recession. Those who, who barely got back on their feet then got, you know, the hell whacked out of them with the uh, with the uh, with the 2008 Great Recession, anybody from that time forward, they've just you know, it's why they have no faith in capitalism. They shouldn't. It doesn't deliver. And uh, you know, part of what we're seeing here is an economic system that's failing, uh, but nothing really to take its place yet. And uh, and we're going to have to build that together. And that starts by demanding that our government take steps to meet the needs of the people. And uh, so that's where I think labor needs to be. That's where our union, UE, will be at. Um, and some other unions will, unfortunately, uh, uh, not enough will unless they, uh, they're feeling the heat from their own members and from the progressive movement in general. So we need your help. I'll stop there. No, thank you. And we, we at PDA are fully here to help and to be in total coordination as best we can. Uh, you know, PDA is, of course, made up, as I was sort of implying, with a lot of progressives who maybe in their progressive work and the day in, day out, uh, do not immediately have relationships with the labor, with the union movement, but many of our members around the country do have union backgrounds. And uh, and so we are here fully to be in solidarity with organized labor. And and most of all, of course, the progressive wing, the forward-thinking wing of the labor movement. And now I'm going to introduce uh, Clem Balanoff, who I just lost his uh, bio from right here, but he is the National Political Director of Amalgamated Transit Workers and a former Illinois State Representative. Uh, Clem Balanoff, welcome. And um, we're, we're going to do, too, is after this, and I really hope that Carl and Clem and Joseph can hang, we're going to do a, a video from Stephanie Kelton, and then William Darity, who's already joined us, who was going to be at the bottom of the hour, but let's have him after Stephanie Kelton's presentation, have him reflect on the role of, again, running deficits, the strategy of the particular economic school that Professor Darity's from, and how it can relate to building union density going forward and dramatically building union density, perhaps in the context of a Green New Deal. Um, so, Clem Balanoff, welcome to uh, your thoughts reflecting off of what Joseph and Carl have said so far. Uh, Clem should be here shortly. She, he has oh, not arrived yet. He's not on right now. Um, she, well, okay, uh, Professor Darity, um, do you want to take us? Why don't we do this? Why don't we take a stab at the, the framing I just provided for Professor Darity? And then we'll go to uh, see if Clem is here by then, and then to Stephanie, then back to Professor Darity. Your thoughts on, uh, you know, not giving in to PAYGO, running deficits, and how your thoughts on how we can possibly um, force, like the Roosevelt administration did, the, ra the rapid fire growth of union density. Um, wow. <laughs> uh, well, well, let me start with the easier question, which is uh, what's wrong with PAYGO? Uh, yeah. I, I think that the most recent uh, episode of response to the COVID-19 crisis coupled with the response that took place to the Great Recession, demonstrates that the federal government can come up with vast sums of money overnight without increasing taxes on anyone. Uh, I think it's really circumstantial whether or not uh, increased expenditure leads to higher rates of inflation. Uh, typically, when the economy is relatively depressed, uh, you're, you don't have much of a risk of inflation associated with the additional expenditure. And I want to note that you can increase the expenditure, you can increase the deficit, which is just a definitional phenomenon that's associated with your expenditures being bigger than your taxes, uh, without increasing your debt. So you don't necessarily have to increase the debt burden 
to raise expenditures. And so I think people incorrectly conflate increasing the deficit with increasing the national debt. The two do not go hand in hand. They don't necessarily have any kind of connection whatsoever. And so I, I don't think that there's any limitation on the capacity of the federal government as a sovereign currency issuer to increase its expenditure. I think there's no reason for us to be either uh, deficit hawks or deficit doves. Uh, I think we need to just stop being afraid of the deficit altogether and push forward with the types of programs that are really needed. Now, with respect to the question of, of building union strength, um, I'm not sure that if what I've been advocating as a component of an economic bill of rights is something that will build union strength, but it certainly, I think it will enhance the, um, the collective position of labor, which is the introduction of a, a federal job guarantee, a guarantee of an employment through the public sector for all American adults uh, that would involve uh, the provision of salaries that would be at least at the level of, uh, of, the, of, of the poverty rate uh, and would also include uh, it would include um, uh, benefits a benefits package that would be comparable to the benefits that are made available to all federal civil servants. Uh, I think that this actually would be a very effective way of establishing the floor on compensation for all workers, uh, in part because uh, the the, pub, the private sector wouldn't have the opportunity to hire anybody unless they at least match the minimum standard of compensation that's provided by the public sector through a federal job guarantee. Um, I would also add that this is a great way of complementing efforts to establish a living wage because uh, minimum wage requirements do not affect individuals who have no job and minimum wage requirements don't ensure that um, that individuals will work a sufficient number of hours to be eligible for benefits. But if you had a, a federal job guarantee, then you could establish those preconditions for employment uh, in such a way that the private sector would either have to match it or not hire people at all. Uh, and uh, I don't have a problem with that. So, all right. Well, thank you. And we'll go to Stephanie in a second. Actually, I'm going to toss to Carl Rosen. Maybe quickly, Joseph, if you guys can take this again, solving the problems of the world in 60 seconds, like AOC did the other night. Um, if you can just, your thoughts, Carl Rosen, on a federal jobs guarantee and building union density, because obviously this is something that has been uh, entered into progressive parlance. And of course, I'm fully supportive of the federal jobs guarantee. Carl. Yeah, I, I mean, a, a, it should be done just because that should be a basic human right is a right yeah. to a job. And there's nobody else who can guarantee it other than the federal government. Uh, but, but B, it would definitely help in union organizing because the main problem in organizing workers is fear of losing their job, which by the way, is also tied in many cases to fear of losing their health care because we have this abysmal uh, system of health care tied to your job. Um, and, but if, if there was a guaranteed job out there, uh, workers no longer have that fear. Uh, polling uh, regularly shows that somewhere in the vicinity of 60% of all workers say they would like to have a union in their workplace um, if if they could. Uh, yet, you know, 6% in the private sector, uh, I think maybe 11% overall, including public sector. There's a big disconnect there. And the main reason is job fear. Uh, bosses literally terrorize uh, their workers that you're going to lose your job if you organize a union. And uh, and when there's not a guarantee of another job out there that does it. So I, I think it's an excellent uh, approach. But I would also say we aren't going to win that unless we have a strong enough movement that it's probably also a movement that can organize unions and that can win healthcare for all and that can do all the other things that we need to do. They all go together. Um, and Joseph, quickly, your thoughts on uh, the conversation? Again, the only thing I would say is we must be deliberate about building power. Good policy by itself is not sustainable unless we build power. That means when we create good jobs for all, when we say there's a federal jobs guarantee, the president of the United States should say, those workers have the right to form a union. I will not tolerate any union busting. Imagine tens of millions of workers in organization. That's what we're missing on our side. And that is why we're losing. 
if we get in power and just pass good policy, that's what Barack Obama did. He got into office. And he's like, I'm going to work on the ACA, on health care. Instead of building power, which was he could have, the first thing you should have done is grow the union movement, uh, give rights to uh, undocumented immigrants, grow your base. And then we can accomplish everything else. So what I am saying here, again, is we need to be pragmatic and make sure that we are deliberate about building organizations so we can win the world we want to see. That requires organized people, organized money. The labor movement is that institution on the left. It's been eviscerated by the corporate Democrats and the Republicans. The Republicans use the churches. We don't have that. And so, again, I just want to be very pragmatic. We, this is not about policy alone. This is also about progressive power. And that is what we are here to build. That is brilliant. Um, so I am going to now play having having had Joseph say that and keep that in our minds, because now, uh, just per the quirks of our um, our schedule, we are going to go to someone who's going to speak primarily about policy. So we'll come back not losing Joseph's point. And here now is Stephanie Kelton. And I'm going to go to it through my screen share. Uh, Stephanie Kelton, of course, was uh, Bernie Sanders' chief economic advisor. Um, I believe she is a close associate of Professor Darity. Um, and uh, I suppose I give enough of an introduction in the uh, screen share that I will do right now. Hello, I am really excited to introduce to Progressive Central Stephanie Kelton, who I believe is really one of the groundbreaking voices in political economy in the world. Her work and its uh, significance for a potential progressive shift in public policy in the United States and around the world cannot be overstated. She's the author of this book, The Deficit Myth. I encourage everybody, everybody to go out and pick this up. This is a very easily digestible work of popular economic writing, and it is groundbreaking to say the least. But before we get to uh, its groundbreaking nation, I'm gonna, uh, nature, I'm going to ask uh, Stephanie to assess the current economy. And in particular, in terms of, and I apologize for being a devil's advocate here, progressive central people, the poll numbers, frightening poll numbers from CNN yesterday that not only showed Donald Trump only four points behind Joe Biden, which means outside of where I am in California, he's at least tied in the rest of the country, okay? And, um, but that his handling of the economy is positive. So your assessment of that and where the economy is just quickly broad brushstrokes on uh, in the COVID-19 pandemic. Look, I mean, um, things are not good, Alan, and it is in many ways um, quite bizarre that uh, the polls do reflect some uh, favorable, um, you know, sentiments with respect to uh, President Trump and the way that he has managed the economy. Um, he's masterful, obviously, at messaging. He, in a sense, creates his own message. And to the extent that people, um, you know, listen to him. Look, I was in the car with my daughter yesterday, mm -hmm. and she's 13 years old. And we were listening to part of his speech in Minnesota. He was talking live, and he was talking about greatest. You know, I'm building back this economy. Greatest job numbers in the history of the world already coming back. The labor market, greatest retail sales, greatest auto sales. And my daughter said to me, is that true? You see, so, you know, one can play with these numbers because you can go, well, compared to where we were last month, you know, there's this snapback. But if you take a broader look at where we are, we are still looking at a labor market where now we're celebrating that we lost just less than a million jobs, just slightly fewer. Um, so we're not losing a million jobs a week any longer. It's just slightly a hair under a million. This is not a good economy. This is not a good labor market. There are um, signs of improvement. Improvement, that's a good thing. But, um, you know, the virus is still in many ways in control. And until we get the virus under control, we're going to have hot spots, we're going to have more lockdowns, and you're going to have this fits and starts with the economy. So, um, you know, we and, and the other piece of this just very quickly is that a a big part of the reason that things did not completely unwind, you know, in terms of the economy is that we did incredibly um, important things like this top up in unemployment insurance, the extra $600 a week that went to tens of millions of people. It was a lifeline, enormously important in terms of the support it provided for the economy. 
um, the um, small business loans, you know, the payroll protection program and all of these things that helped a great deal, but have now expired. So I'm looking longer term at the inaction now on the part of Congress to come back in and resurrect some support for the economy. And I think absent that, Donald Trump could be looking at some uh, third quarter numbers that are going to surprise him to the downside. Things get very ugly very quick. Um, so obviously right now we are in a situation where I imagine the federal deficit has gone up dramatically uh, since uh, March or yeah, March of this year. Uh, can you uh, explain, first of all, to the audience who may not be that familiar with the, with the term PAYGO and then your critique of PAYGO and this relationship to, um, yeah, let's, let's, let's step into the difficult waters of the Democratic Party as it's been. Yeah. Yeah, so so everybody probably who's going to listen to this will remember all too well 2019 that we had a very crowded field of Democratic presidential hopefuls, that you had everyone from, you know, someone like Senator Sanders at one end, um, you know, maybe to the Amy Klobuchar's and the Mayor Pete's, in other words, and everybody in between, right? And all of these candidates came with some kind of a policy agenda, ranging from very ambitious, big ticket, expensive, lots of spending to more modest sorts of things, right? But whether you were at one extreme or the other, the question that dogged all of these candidates throughout the um, primary campaign season was, of course, how are you going to pay for it? Where is the money going to come from? And, you know, to ordinary people, I think when when we hear that question asked, you go on, you sit down with Anderson Cooper or whomever, they say, well, how are you going to pay for your proposals? It sounds like a reasonable thing to ask because we've got this idea that the federal government has to somehow run its um, finances run its budget the way that we run ours, like a household. And so you want to spend more, you got to find money somewhere, right? So this question really was an obstacle for all of the Democrats. They had to lay out some sort of a blueprint a blueprint in order to be perceived as credible. I can find the money here. I can raise this tax. I can cut this other type, type of spending. That's what PAYGO is. PAYGO is a budgeting rule that sometimes applies, although Congress can waive it off when it wants to, but it's a budgeting rule that basically says, if you want to spend an additional dollar into the economy, you have to show me that you have a plan to take a dollar out of some other part of the economy. That way, you don't add to the deficit. So if you want to spend a dollar in, that's fine, as long as you cut a dollar of spending somewhere else or raise a dollar of new revenue. So that Whatever it is you want to do doesn't increase the deficit, doesn't add to the debt. So you're following pay go, pay as you go. Now, fast forward to March of 2020. All of that is out the window. Congress is spinning out multi-trillion dollar pieces of legislation. No one paused for a moment to say, where is the money going to come from? How are we going to pay for it? They simply wrote what's known in D.C. circles as a clean bill. They wrote the bill to provide the spending without any offset, without a tax increase, without reducing spending in some other area of the budget. And so we can see now pretty clearly that Congress always had the power to do what it's doing now. We could have done it this way in 2019. The constraint really isn't finding the money. It isn't running out of money. It isn't the deficit. The constraint is the capacity of the real economy to safely handle whatever spending Congress is authorizing. And in an economy like the one we have today, one that is very depressed with tens of millions of people unemployed, with businesses that are lacking customers, there is lots and lots of policy space. We could call it fiscal space for Congress to come in and do what it's been doing, authorize new spending without offsetting that spending because the risk of inflation is very low right now. Mm -hmm. So. That's sort of the, the longish answer to your question. Okay, so, um, and I do think, I think people can maybe recognize from what you said that this is something that Republicans haven't respected, but Democrats have actually been more disciplined about in terms of driving up deficits. And the Republicans have, have in a sense, almost intuited this reality, and then Democrats maintain a, a sort of a blindness to the reality that you're describing. But quickly then, if, if, if the Democrats were to recognize uh, this, what you see as a, a fundamental truth of 
the way that the American national economy functions with our sovereign currency produced by the federal government or generated from the federal government. Uh, what does that mean for things like the Green New Deal, possibly? Medicare for all is a little bit of a different case, but maybe throw that in. And your thoughts about how this opens up possibilities and we can make public arguments for and advocate for them going forward, given given what is in this book. That's yeah. Well, first thing, you're absolutely right. Uh, Republicans understand, I think, very well that every deficit is good for someone. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so the deficit, for people who may not know, the deficit is just the difference between two numbers, right? One number is how many dollars the government is spending into the economy in a given year. The other number is how many they're subtracting back out, mostly through taxation. Okay. So if the government's budget is in deficit, it simply means they're adding more than they're subtracting. And when they do that, somebody gets a surplus so that the government's deficit is really a cash infusion. It's a deposit of money that's going somewhere in the economy. So the Republicans get this. Boy, do they. Those tax cuts that they passed in December of 2017 will add roughly $2 trillion to deficits over the course of 10 years. In other words, they're putting a couple trillion dollars onto the balance sheets, into the pockets of companies of individuals in this com in this country where did they go right where they want them to go to the place where they will do the least good to the people who least need the help but the republicans are saying this is what we want we're going to use the deficit to deliver this windfall and so forth so think now like a democrat what could democrats do if they moved away from this obsession that they have had with being the, the more responsible, fiscally responsible party. Oh, we don't do what the Republicans do. We pay for our programs. We don't add to deficits. What if they got over that and understood that there's nothing inherently wrong with using the government's budget, allowing a deficit to produce a surplus somewhere, and using that to pass legislation? You mentioned a Green New Deal or you know, student debt cancellation or making public colleges and universities tuition-free or any number of other progressive priorities. What if Democrats approach the federal budgeting process with the same degree of commitment that Republicans bring and say, we're just going to use the budget to carry out our agenda, right? The deficit is your friend as long as it's not adding to inflationary pressures. And, and, and we're going to leave it there, but people really read this. The point that Stephanie leaves on about inflation is, of course, central to the argument laid out so eloquently in this book, The Deficit Myth. And I want to thank you so much, Stephanie Kelton, for joining us today on Progressive Central. It's so nice to see you, Alan. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, and that is, of course, Stephanie Kelton. And how do I get rid of my stop share? There we go. And um, so Clem Balanoff, by the way, is in an executive committee call. Maybe I'm not supposed to say that, but he is going to join us. And um, for the uh, for Deb and everybody on the staff, let Clem know that he can join any time over the next two hours and 15 minutes as we're extending this. And you'll, of course, want to hear from Clem Balanoff. And um, Susie Shannon is joined. We'll get her thoughts on the DNC Poverty Council and her thoughts on the poverty in the United States of America and how we tackle that as progressives. And, um, and of course, it would be natural to go back to Professor Darity. But along what Stephanie said, I'm actually really interested first in hearing from Carl Rosen and Joseph because, you know, unions weren't highlighted there, but your thoughts on how unions can fit into what, and let's go to Carl first, what, uh, what uh, Stephanie laid out there. I, I couldn't agree with her more. She's absolutely right. In fact, it's not only that uh, deficits don't do any harm when you're in this kind of deep economic hole. Uh, you have to have deficits in order to, to move things forward. And, and who will suffer if we don't have them? is working people. And so unions need to be out there advocating uh, for huge deficit spending. It's what I mentioned before, Obama's biggest mistake, um, you, know, uh, you know, beyond what Joseph pointed that, that he didn't build power, uh, was that he did a, a, you know, he listened to Wall Street on what the economic recovery should be like. And they designed a economic recovery that recovered their product, uh, profits uh, but didn't recover the sta living standards for the working people and didn't recover jobs. And Biden left his own devices will do the same thing. It will be better than what Trump is doing, which is to drive things even worse into the hole. Uh, so it'll be an improvement from that, but it won't be nearly sufficient unless we 
we push them. And let me just add on to Joseph's point, though, about why Obama didn't build power and why the Democrats in general don't build power. It's because they're corporate Democrats. They don't want worker power. Mm. And we have to understand that. We have to challenge and we're the majority and, mm-hmm. and we need to take over this country and say, we're going to build worker power because workers are the overwhelming majority of this country and that's who should have power. And they need institutions that, you know, it, it, the only institutions that have ever really been able to challenge corporate power in terms of their size and strength and money have been, have been unions. And when you use that, you know, the other chart I thought Joseph was maybe going to show is that chart that shows unions going downhill. Also, during that exact same time is when the wealth inequality and income inequality gap grew. It's an exact parallel. And that's why we need to rebuild worker power, rebuild unions. And uh, and right now, uh, we don't get that there without massive deficits. Thank you, Joseph. A quick thought. Amen. Uh, just a. a n- just to underscore again why we need power, Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. Won the White House by flipping 200 counties that voted for Barack Obama twice. (laughs) Places like Trumbull County in Ohio. That place was a center of CP organizing in the day. It was a center of leftist organize in Youngstown, right? Ohio, in Michigan. These were places that uh, have been democratic strongholds because they were bastions of union organizing. Right. How in the heck did those places all of a sudden vote for Donald Trump? Because their jobs disappeared. Because the president's from Clinton to Obama didn't say, we're gonna make sure manufacturing stays. And we lost power. The unions disappeared. The union halls are empty in these places. It's right, we don't have power. And then you get a charlatan like Donald Trump who goes in and says, every decision I make is gonna deliver more jobs, better wages. That's a direct quote from Donald Trump during the campaign trial, mm-hmm. right? He mm-hmm. said, he went, to Lordstown, Ohio, he said, right, right. The, your jobs are coming back. I'm going to be the biggest job creator ever. I'm going to stand with the American worker. The workers that are there now are the grandchildren and great-grandchildren mm-hmm. of union workers who struggled, got into the middle class, and they're pissed off right now because they see right? What has been taken away by corporate greed and they want to blow up the system. That being said, if the unions were strong and those jobs were still there, we would have the White House. It is a function of power. We lose votes when we lose unions. And so I just want to underscore, there is a direct correlation between Democrats' complicity and union busting with Republicans and why we have Donald Trump. And we're not... So, yeah. Oh, no, it's great. And I I just want to say, and I hope everybody remembers how I introduced Joseph. I think it is so brilliant that you're the the head of our revolution right now because of your understanding of the significant role of labor unions. And I hope that you and Carl and Clem, who's hopefully going to join us later, and everybody can work with Joseph, and that also PDA in our work with our revolution can remain fully committed and cognizant at all times of the role of labor unions. Because I do worry that this sort of Post the generations post labor unions of the activist left lose sight of the centrality, and you really hit the nail right on the head that this anchors the continuation and maintenance of power for the progressive left when we build up labor unions. Um, we are going to run out of time in a second, and I want to go to Professor Darity. Maybe just, um, and I do want to have a little bit of shift in the focus on Professor Darity, but I'm going to throw to him, and maybe we'll have time for one final word from Carl and Joseph, and then we'll go to Susie Shannon. Professor Darity, off of what Stephanie said. Um, and, and your thought about the theory that, that Stephanie lays out around money, deficits, opposed to PAYGO, um, the reality in the United States of America of the racial wealth gap, uh, the possible role that reparations, the necessary role that reparations would pay in adjusting 
the in, in, in balancing out the racial wealth gap. First of all, maybe you'd want to explain to the audience what that is, the racial wealth gap, where it sits right now. I know I was on a call with you just about 10 days ago where your eloquence on the subject was as distinct and as profound as anything that I've heard, especially relating to the long arc of American history and uh, the importance of progressives supporting this and, and what it would mean for the society and the economy in general. So first, let me say thank you for inviting me to participate and to say amen also to everything that Joseph and Carl have said, and also to thank my dear friend Robbie Akere for, uh, for being here and for supporting the kinds of work that I've been trying to do. Uh, let me say at the outset that I believe we need to embrace a suite of policies simultaneously that would be transformative in American society. And I think that this may be the opportunity to really push forward on these policy changes, particularly if the Senate can be turned in the proper direction. Uh, the suite of policies that I'm referring to, um, Mark Paul, Derek Hamilton, and myself have, have called an economic bill of rights for the 21st century. Uh, this includes what I was talking about earlier, a federal job guarantee, but it also includes uh, a national health insurance program. It includes uh, a postal banking system, as well as uh, public banking as a provision to all Americans. It includes a guarantee of adequate shelter and housing, and it also includes now uh, something that we didn't talk about originally, but the universal provision of Wi-Fi services, not only access to broadband itself, but also access to the machinery or equipment that permits you to make use of, of, of broadband services. And these are universal. Sorry. Oh, nothing. These, Keep going. Yeah, these are universal uh, uh, projects that would be beneficial to all Americans. But I think simultaneously, we need to adopt a program of reparations that's specifically designated for Black American descendants of US slavery for the purposes of eliminating the racial wealth gap, which constitutes a situation in which Black Americans are 13% of the nation's population, but possess less than 2.6% of the nation's wealth. Uh, this corresponds to a situation in which there's a net worth differential of $800,000 on average between the typical black and white household in the United States. And now when I say typical, I mean typical at the mean rather than at the median, the middle of the distribution. And the reason why I think we have to focus on the mean is because 97% of the wealth that is held by white households is held by white households with a net worth above the white median or above the white middle. Uh, this is not just a consequence of a handful of white billionaires owning a large amount of the wealth, although they in fact do that. But 25% of white households have a net worth in excess of $1 million, and only 4% of black households have a net worth in excess of $1 million. And so that's the gulf that needs to be bridged by a reparations project. And that's what we need to do by structuring a program that would provide direct payments to eligible recipients of amounts that would be sufficient to eliminate the racial wealth differential over the course of a decade. Uh, the final thing I'd like to say is that unfortunately, the pathway towards reparations is now set by a piece of legislation that we know of as HR 40 to form a study commission for, uh, for uh, examination of proposals for reparations for African Americans. And I'm not going to go in detail immediately, but that legislation is, is very, very flawed and it needs to either be revised or replaced. And so I, I, I'm always nervous about people who are, are well-intentioned in terms of their support for reparations, jumping to support for HR 40, because HR 40 is inadequate. Um, thank you for that. You know, and, in, and even in your final phrase there, you recall um, Ebram X. Kendi's magisterial book, um, Oh boy, from the beginning, and I'm forgetting the Stand word. From the Stand from the beginning, which does point to uh, you know the history of some well-intentioned, particularly European Americans, uh, throughout the history of the United States, and 
but having wrong-headed approaches to addressing American structural institutional racism, which is certainly a strong subtext to that exceptional work. And so thank you for that. Actually, I, I look forward to getting in touch with you and talking to you about your critique of HR 40. And then we obviously have connections up on Capitol Hill, even, even with uh, Sheila Jackson Lee's office um, and, uh, and how that can, uh, you know, we can talk about making a stronger bill to introduce and try and try to gain support for it. Right. So thank you very much, Professor Darity, for your contribution. Um, and any just final thoughts for the last minute? We'll try to get over to Susie Shannon as quick as possible, just in the last 15 seconds. Uh, no, but I'd be glad to discuss HR 40 at any point with everybody. <laughs> Thank you so much, Professor Barry. It's an honor to have you here. Carl Rosen, final thought as we close out the hour in 15 to 45 seconds. Just glad we're having this discussion and uh, come out fighting, everybody. That's what we got to do. And uh, Joseph, our partner with our revolution, and I want to say this because I said it on the opening plenary too. You know, it can get confusing for people with all these various progressive organizations. What I'm finding is there's be becoming a pretty nice division of labor going on, certainly with our revolution and progressive Democrats of America. I encourage everybody to be joint members of both organizations, our revolution and progressive Democrats of America, as you can tell from Paco on the first uh, opening plenary and Joseph today. Uh, we have a great working relationship and I just love working with you, Joseph, organizing with you and looking forward to working together going forward. Final thoughts. No, I want to thank you, Alan, and Mike Hirsch and Dan O'Neill uh, for all of the work that you guys are leading on. Um, and I think one of the things that's encouraging is that we are collaborating very specifically in places like Florida and Arizona. We're building organizations together. Uh, and that's important because, as I said, in some ways, I see our role as critical in this moment where labor has lost power, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, we, we, mm -hmm. we don't have those organizations that are effective in the public arena. We step in, right? And by joining forces, working together in different jurisdictions, select progressive champions to defeat Trump, to advance policy issues, that's how we can get to uh, the end game. So PDA members, love you guys. Thank you so much, Joseph. Thank you so much in solidarity.